Morning, church. It's good to be here with you this morning. Again, it's been a wonderful week uh, to serve and to be here and to be part of Calvary Monument Bible Church. Uh, Thursday, we uh, celebrated the coming home of Thelma Rainier here, so you can keep her family uh, in prayers as they mourn and they grieve uh, her loss. Uh, but also on Thursday, I had the opportunity uh, in the evening to spend some time with our children's ministry workers. Uh, they were here to share with the elders. And uh, I'll tell you, folks, we, we have a great team here of, of individuals that are serving our children. And uh, there's always opportunities to be involved if the Lord's uh, maybe peeking at your heart or, or maybe convicting you in a way that you could get involved or jump in here at Calvary Monument. Our children's ministry team would love to have you uh, become a part of that. And so it was great to hear from them. And then uh, great to continue in on uh, my first elder meeting, uh, which was a really nice time to spend uh, with the elders here at Calvary Monument Bible Church. So again, it was a, a fabulous week as we get acclimated to uh, Calvary Monument being our new home. When I was young, uh, <clears throat> a child, my mother would often invite guests to come over to our house. And uh, i got to be honest, sometimes um, it would be a little frustrating because some of you remember how that was when you had guests coming over to your house. And as a young boy, uh, my room did not always look the cleanest uh, or the best. And so I remember on multiple occasions, mom coming and saying, hey, we have some folks coming over on Saturday. You need to clean your room. And uh, boy, it was not fun. And, uh, you know, shoving everything under my bed was very difficult and, and uh, pushing everything into my closets and shutting my door uh, also was not very, very fun. Uh, and, and I remember thinking to myself as I was doing that, boy, if these people that were coming over only knew where to really look uh, when they came to visit the house, they would see how we really uh, live when, when no one's here. And, you know, the interesting thing is one of the worst things that could happen uh, in my home uh, growing up, because my mom, she really is very hospitable and she loved to entertain people. But one of the things that was probably scariest to her and most frustrating to her is when we would have uninvited guests, right? Somebody that would just drive and, and you all, maybe some of you dread this as well. And they come to your house and, and, and nothing is as it should be. Everything's out of order, it's chaotic, and it, it looks crazy, and you're like, oh no, oh my, what are they going to think? Well, in our text today, uh, we're going to find that mom and dad are home, and the people of the Pharisees that we meet. We're going to find that the children are at play uh, in the worshipers that are in the temple, and we're also going to find that the house is messy and chaotic, and an unexpected visitor is arriving in the person of Jesus. And so our goal today is to witness Jesus as the one true temple through which man would come to believe and have life in his name. So we're going to be in the book of John chapter 2 today as we continue our study through the book of John, studying John in light of the reason that it was written. And as you turn there this morning, let's pray. Father God, we come together this morning again with anticipation as a body of Christ for what you're preparing our hearts and our minds for. God, we acknowledge this morning that, our word is, that your word is powerful, that our activity this morning, Lord, is a corporate activity that you desire for us to engage in on a regular basis. And Father, we know that you have a purpose and a plan 
for what you'll have for us in your word today. And so it's with that anticipation that we come, knowing that when we leave here, our lives should look differently than they were before we entered these doors. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to witness the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. It's in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. And I'll go ahead and read that text this morning as you follow along. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So the question that we ask this morning as we approach this passage is what is the problem? What's going on here at the onset of the passage? And the problem, as we alluded to at the beginning, is very clear. The lamb is present and the house is messy and the celebration is chaotic. The Passover of the Jews, it was an important celebration. As we open our text in verse 13, they were coming together to celebrate the Passover. And many of you remember the Passover was a celebration that was a regular celebration in the Jewish culture that remembered the work of of God when the, the people were in slavery in Egypt and God was protecting them as he was... Putting, they were putting the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. And during the night when the angel of death came through and took the firstborn, it would pass over the houses of the blood, that had the blood on the doorpost. And so they would gather together regularly and they would celebrate. And, and it was required in the law that they had this regular celebration. Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. A statute forever. It said later in Exodus 12 that the people bowed their heads together during the Passover and they worshiped. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, it said, remember what the Lord your God did. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, remember the day that the Lord brought you out of Egypt. And so there was commands that were built into the celebration of Passover that were part of the Jewish uh, tradition to remember and to celebrate. It kind of we can kind of liken it to our Christmas and our Easter celebrations uh, that we see. And and much like our wedding celebration that we looked at last week at the beginning of chapter 2, the Passover celebration would also last for about seven days. And just as last week we witnessed the irony of the bridegroom Jesus performing a miracle at a wedding, so too this week 
we find irony. At the onset of the Passover celebration, the Lamb of God is entering his Father's temple. The earthly ministry of Jesus following his baptism would be bookended by the Passover celebration. And here at the onset, and again towards the end of his physical presence on earth in John chapter 19. But what Jesus finds when he enters into the temple is far from what should have been. You know, as we looked at John chapter 1 last week, uh, we found that Jesus had gone out and he found his disciples, those who would be faithful to follow him. Well, the problem with the men that he, he finds here in, in John chapter 2 is these were the men that largely would reject who he was. Here in John chapter 2, Jesus is finding another group of people, a group that would respond very differently to him. His disciples, they responded in obedience and they faithfully followed him. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they wouldn't do the same. They rejected him. And could it be that one of the purposes of John, including this account so early in his gospel, was to juxtapose the way that both groups responded to Jesus? John chapter 1, people responding in faith and obedience. John chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, people rejecting him and turning away. And we cover it at the, at the beginning of John chapter 1 uh, that people respond to Jesus in many different ways. What Jesus found when he entered the temple was a system of commercialization. Buying, selling, exchanging of monies. So you had these oxen and these sheep. Uh, each had a specific use that was uh, important for the sacrificial system. You had these money changers. And so what would happen is people would come from far and wide all different areas with all different financial systems. And they would come to the temple and they would need to buy animals to sacrifice, but they wouldn't have the right denomination of coin. And so these money changers, they'd sit at the table and they'd exchange the monies, the different denominations of coin, but they would do it at a profit for themselves. It would not be an equal exchange. It reminds me a lot, if you remember back in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Samuel, there's these two men, their names were Hophni and Phinehas. Everybody remember Hophni and Phinehas? They were, they were Eli's sons, they were priests. And what was their sin? The sin of Hophni and Phinehas is that they were taking the things of God, taking the things in the temple, the things that were supposed to be holy, and the things that were supposed to be set apart, and they were using them to profit for their own gain. They were using them to fill their own coffers. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were doing the same thing. Having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge for the truth. Men who opposed the truth. They were corrupted in their mind. They were disqualified regarding the faith. If it sounds familiar, these are the same words that Paul used to describe similar characters that were appearing within the church and still persist, friends, today. What the Pharisees had created was a system that looked godly and orderly to them. However, they had made a mess of the temple and they'd commercialized the celebration of one of the Jews' major religious holidays to profit for their own gain. In the name of law and order, the religious leaders had actually created for themselves a system of distraction and chaos. 
And what we find here is Jesus comes on the scene. He observes the scene on the temple court. And he is passionately moved. And he acts without hesitation. So what's his response? If you look at your text, let's look at verses 15 and 17 of Jesus' response to this madness that he finds going on in the temple. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so here we are at, in verse 15 of John chapter 2 and Jesus is making a whip and he's driving the animals and the sheep, the oxen. He's coming back and he's driving the Pharisees and the money changers out of the temple. It's a very deliberate action. And, 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 and to be honest with you folks, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders that were in the temple, their jaws would have literally been on the floor. I mean, have you ever been around somebody that acted in a way that literally made your jaw drop? That you were like, oh! You know, it kind of took you back and you're like, they shouldn't have said that or they shouldn't have done that. Jesus' response to this action in the temple would have elicited the same, that same kind of response from the religious leaders. They would have been shocked and in awe that a man would, would come in and that he would do this. But Jesus is, is acting out of a righteous anger he, and he's showing us just a glimpse of a picture of the wrath of God. You know, in our minds, we often imagine Jesus to be meek and mild. I'm sure uh, many of you have, have thought about that before, have been told, oh, Jesus, he was very peace-loving, very, a very mild person. And as I read this text and, and as we look at this passage, the question hit me this week, and, and it's hit me before many times. If you ask the Pharisees and if you ask the religious leaders if Jesus was a meek, and mild individual, I wonder what their responses would have been. That, that may not be the Jesus that they witnessed. And you know, the amazing truth about who Jesus was is that he was exactly obedient to who God wanted him to be in every circumstance and to every person that God had directed into his path. And sometimes God brings us to these circumstances that might require or elicit a similar response from us. And I just want to tell you an account that happened to me. Years ago, I was running, directing a youth camp over the summer. And a friend of mine knew a speaker from Texas that was a really good speaker. He thought he would be a really good speaker for the youth. And so um, I watched some of his videos on YouTube. I, I listened to him and I thought, yeah, this, this guy, he, he'll do a good job. So I called him and, and, I, and I had him come up and, and during the two weeks of camp in the evenings he was doing the evangelistic services for the youth at the camp and he was speaking. And one night as he was speaking he told a story, a message to the kids and it had every one of the kids and every leader in the room on the edge of their seats. It was amazing. And he told it like it had happened to him. Like it was his story. It was literally about his life. And I remember the next day at lunch, I was sitting and I was talking to him. And I said, you know, I, that's an amazing story. I, I can't believe that happened to you. I mean, I, I was just completely in awe. And he looked and he kind of laughed and he said, oh, he's like, that didn't happen to me. He's like I, I just, he's like, I just tell that story a lot to people. He's like, that never really actually happened to me. My jaw hit the ground. 
my, my heart sunk. I, I was angry. And, and here I was in, in a public lunchroom, sitting at a public lunch table with this man, with some of the you staff surrounding me. And I, you know how you can feel yourself getting angry sometimes? <laughs> the face was getting red. I was angry because I felt like this man had just lied the night before to an entire room of people. Everybody thought that this story was about him, that it had happened to him. And I, and I, and I just told him, and, and maybe it wasn't right, I don't know, I'm going to chalk it up to this kind of moment. I said, you know, I don't appreciate that. And, and I kind of called him on it, and I was a little passionate. And he had some words for me <laughs> that maybe were just as passionate. But, but I asked him if he would apologize to the students because I was just so disappointed about it. And, and so there are times where maybe we have to display this same kind of passion where we, we, we may not always be nice because we feel like maybe there are folks that are profaning or are using the name of God to profit for their own gain. Jesus' response here is wholly acceptable, not to the religious leaders of the day, but to God. And, and that's all that matters. And so we might ask the question, well, if Jesus was loving while he was on earth, how in this situation is he being loving to the religious leaders? It doesn't seem loving. And, and it's important we don't think and we don't mistake that Jesus was taking a whip of cords and that he was whipping the Pharisees with them. I've heard, I've heard that before. All right, there were temple guards. There were, there were Roman soldiers around. If Jesus was creating chaos, if he was truly whipping men with, a, with the cords, he probably would have been questioned about it by more than just the Pharisees and religious leaders. But Jesus is angry and he's making a statement. And we could ask ourselves, how is he being loving? And, and I think there's a few ways. One, I, I think he's exposing the erroneous thinking and the erroneous actions of the religious leaders in a way that might have grabbed hold of their attention and shown them the seriousness of the navigational error they had concerning the worship of God. Now, I think it's loving because he was not, he loved them enough to not allow them to continue to operate in the house of the Lord the way that they had been. He's showing them a better way. You know, I share this illustration to people a lot. We live, our family lives right along a major road right in Quarryville, and we have a very steep hill. And, and I say a lot, if, if my children, if they, like, if they would like to go outside and play on the steep hill down by the road where all the traffic is driving back and forth, when in our backyard we have this football field backyard with the trampoline in it, and it's a much nicer, more fun place to play, I would think. But wouldn't, as a father, as a good father, wouldn't I want to show them a better way? Wouldn't I want to go down along the side of the road and say, hey, kids, I, I don't understand what, what you like down here. This is a steep hill. There's no place to play. There's cars driving all over the place. Wouldn't it be better for me to take them to the backyard and show them that there's a better way? There's a better place to play. And Jesus, I think he's doing this. He, he's going to describe for the Pharisees throughout his teaching, throughout his ministry, that there is a better way than the way that they have been going about doing things. I think it's interesting in verse 16, one of the concluding actions here is Jesus is wrapping up this, this action of clearing the temple and flipping over the tables. That's very dramatic. One of the last parts of this action is, is he asks the people who are selling the pigeons to leave. And, and I don't think that it's, it's, it's an accident that he saves this group for last. It almost appears at this point in the text that Jesus is wearied 
His initial passionate burst has given way to a calmer demeanor as he approaches those who were selling the pigeons to the poor who could not afford to purchase sheep or oxen to sacrifice. And the pigeons were for the poor. And if you remember in Luke 2, Jesus' own parents, at his own dedication, they couldn't offer sheep, they couldn't offer oxen. What did they have? Turtle doves or pigeons. The pigeons were a concession for the poor that God, by his grace, had provided as a means for them to be able to sacrifice. So it should be no surprise to us that this is the last group that Jesus asked to leave the temple. And what I love in verse 17 is, is the disciples' response. Right? Because this action, you would think maybe it would turn a lot of people away. And, and I think we're going to find the religious leaders, they're, they're a little upset about this. But his disciples and those who would follow him and those who had a relationship with Jesus, it actually drove them to remember past teachings. The actions of Jesus while he was on earth were always driving the minds of his disciples back to previous teachings that would affirm who he was. And in their minds, they remember this quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In this instance, in this circumstance, Jesus is consumed by a zeal to see his father's house be used and treated rightly in order that God could be worshipped as he had commanded. And the people who desired to worship him could worship him both in spirit and in truth without the distractions and chaos of a marketplace environment. Friends, church, we should share a similar zeal today. We should be consumed as a church by the desire to see God worship today as he truly is and as he truly desires to be in spirit and in truth. Apart from the distractions, apart from all the chaos and apart from the chasing of the winds of cultural relevance. Friends, our challenge today isn't that there's literal sheep and goats, at least I don't think there are, and oxen wandering around the church. Maybe in some places you have that. I don't, I don't see that here. That's not the challenge today. We don't have literal sheep and oxen and goats and, and all these things in the church, but, but there are distractions that are present, aren't there? And there's so many different things that can distract us from the true worship of God's circumstances in our lives, difficult relationships, difficult situations at our jobs, things that are going on even in our own church, or even worse sometimes, chasing after the ever-shifting tides of trying to be culturally relevant. And sometimes, friends, I fear that we believe that, that and, and I'm guilty of this too at times, and I have to check myself, that, that I ha somehow have to make Jesus relevant to people. Did you ever find yourself guilty of that? Maybe just, you know, that, that there's some way or somehow that we have to make God relevant. Oh, you know, the, the Bible is not relevant anymore. People aren't looking at it. People aren't, we've got to do something to make it more relevant and, and make it more palatable to the people. But, but the reality is this, God no more needs us to make him relevant than he needs us to make him powerful. The word of God, Jesus, he is always relevant. And he will reveal that relevance to whomever he desires to reveal it to. We need not chase after the winds of, of pop church in the pursuit of trying to make God or make the church relevant. 
And, and if we do pursue changes, if we do make changes in our church, in our worship, in our community as it relates to God, let it be because we believe those changes would better allow us to magnify and glorify and put the nature of God on full display to the people that might need to come to know him. The glory of God should be our all-consuming passion in the church today. And it shouldn't be related to relevance, but it should be related to love. Growing in a greater love for God and a greater love for each other, making sure that all who claim to know Jesus are growing in him and motivated to continue and being willing to ask, if not, why not? Now, <clears throat> the reality in this situation is that the religious leaders are less than thrilled about what Jesus has just done. They're not very excited about what has just happened, and now it's their turn to respond to him. And so if you have your text, look down at verses 18. We're going to look at verses 18 to 22 here. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said again, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's interesting here. In verse 18, that the Pharisees seem to be less concerned about the behavior or the action of Jesus and more concerned about his identity or his authority. Listen to the tone of the question. The tone of the question isn't, why did you do that? That's not the tone of the question. The tone of the question is this, who are you? Who are you to do that? This is a question of identity. It's a question of authority. And again, there's a, there's a stark contrast here. If we remember back in John chapter 1, there's a stark contrast between this group and the group that we met in John chapter 1. The group in John chapter 1, they didn't ask for a sign. They simply followed and Jesus showed them. But here, this group, the religious leaders, they need to see a sign first. They demand a sign. Jesus had already given them a sign, though, hadn't he? And in their spiritual blindness, it had gone completely over their head. He actually refers to and responds to their demand for a sign uh, with a further indictment on their religious establishment. Jesus responds in verse 19 to the religious leaders by giving them a task that he knows would expose their true motivations to protect their empire. Destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. Again, the physical, temp the physical temple, it was the empire of the Pharisees' hands. And the reality was the empire of their hands had become the bane of their hearts. That was the reality. They had built for themselves a modern-day tower of Babel. The Messiah that the religious leaders were awaiting, he was coming to take on the Roman Empire and to set up a kingdom where he would rule together with them. But the Messiah that had come was taking on the religious establishment and setting his kingdom upon the hearts of mankind. Now, last week we got to uh, remember how we're draw how we drawing Israel, raising 
rope, peanut, right? Remember that? We talked about raisin rope, peanut last week when we draw Israel. Well, today we want to show and look at a picture of the temple because this is actually happening in the temple, okay? And so the temple, when we look at the temple and you have to draw the temple, it's a lot easier than raisin rope, peanut, okay? So take a look as you look up there. If anyone ever says to you, draw me a picture of the temple, okay? Get ready. Big rectangle, little rectangle, okay? Very easy to remember. So when you're drawing Israel, raisin rope, peanut, when you're drawing the temple, big rectangle, little rectangle, okay? You can see it up there, and that's an easy way to remember how to draw a picture of the temple when people ask you to do that. If, I don't know how many people might ask you to, but if you're ever asked, now you know, okay? So where is this event taking place in the temple? It's, it's significant. It's significant to the story where this event's taking place. If you notice up at the top in the middle, there's that in little rectangle, right? That's like the Holy of Holies. That's where only certain few select people could go into and worship. But there's an arrow drawn here to the outer courts. And the outer courts, this is where the sheep and the oxen and all of the money changers would sit and things would be sold. And the only people that were allowed to worship in those courts were the Gentiles or the unclean Jews. So if you notice, there's a little line at the beginning of little rectangle. There's that little line in between big rectangle and little rectangle. All right, that little line there, that is the wall that separated where the Jews who were clean could actually go in to worship. All right, and so this is taking place in the Gentile court. Now, it's important we know this temple complex, it wasn't like the size of a church. It was much, much bigger. In, in terms of length, it was the length of five and a half football fields. It's football season, so... That might be an easy illustration for us. Five and a half football fields in length. And it was in width, it was the width of about three football fields. So this is an enormous space. And you can kind of see by the size of the people, they look like ants up there. And Jesus is standing as he does this. He's working in the court of the Gentiles. And you know what? The religious leaders were so careful about their worship. And they had created and established such a uh, an orderly plan in their minds for worship that they literally hung a sign on that wall that divided the Gentiles and the Jews. They literally hung a sign that Gentiles were not allowed to pass into the other part of the temple by penalty of death. How loving. How loving, right? And so Jesus is performing this action in the Gentile courts and it's symbolic that, that he had come for all people, that he was here and he had come for every tribe, every tongue, every language. The physical temple had come to represent the work of man, and it had overshadowed the faithfulness and loving kindness of God in favor of a visible place that had been built by human hands. The result then was this, spirituality, a person's spirituality, it came to be defined by one's ability to follow the law of Moses. Morals and ethics became the gauge by which a person's heart and sincerity would be measured. Now, the, the reason that God has always, from the days of Adam and Eve, from the days of Cain and Abel, the reason that he's always desired obedience over sacrifice is partly because in his sovereign plan, he knew the physical temple and the laws of Moses were inadequate and would one day be replaced by the eventual true and holy temple. Friends, our obedience is always more important than our sacrifice. 
And the Pharisees had forgotten that. And so we might ask ourselves the question today, what are we to be obedient to? If our obedience is more important than sacrifice, what are we to be obedient to? And the answer is simple, the commands of God. And so we're looking and we're saying, well, this isn't that what they're doing? Isn't that what the Pharisees are doing in this passage? Aren't they being obedient to the commands of God? And the answer is no. As Jesus informs them over and over and over again, mom and dad, they, they've, they've been on a cruise. Well, I don't know how many of y'all have gone on a cruise before. All right, maybe some of you have. These cruise ships, they sent us a picture of it. They're enormous. You ever seen these things before? They're massive. And so mom and dad sent us a picture of the ship, and it really made me think, like, if the ship represents the commands of God, you know, there, there's a ramp, a boarding ramp that leads up to the ship. And, and the Pharisees, they were supposed to be experts. They were supposed to be the religious experts. They were supposed to be the experts on the ship, on everything about the ship. And somehow along the way, they missed the boarding ramp. And they ended up floating adrift in the ocean, far away from what the true commands had really meant. The cruise ship, all of the commands and the prophets, what it represented, it was love. And the religious elites of the day were totally lost at sea. Jesus describes them as the blind leading the blind, or knowing they did not know. Jesus said this, all the law and the prophets could be summed up in two commands. And both those commands start with the same word. Love. Love. And so our follow-up question, if, if we ourselves are worried about missing the boat, what does this look like? And it's important to realize that the Pharisees, they'd made it a checklist. They'd made it a to-do list. They'd made it a punch list that needed to be cleared out. And our tendency, my tendency, can sometimes be to do the same exact thing in regards to my spirituality. And maybe we do it in regards to our spirituality. And if this is the path we follow, friends, we'll eventually find ourselves in the same position as the Pharisees. Obedience to the commands of God looks like love. It looks like love, and it's not by our own duty or our own efforts, but by the compelling of Christ and by the power of His Spirit at work in our lives. Towards the end of Jesus' life, one of the charges that would be brought against Him would be that He had made threats against the temple. Tear this temple down and I'll raise it up in three days. They had no idea that he was talking about his own body. Little did these men know who were bringing these charges against Jesus that they themselves were destroying the temple. The body of Christ, the Lamb of God had replaced the temple. Something greater had come. And we see the temple and we look at temple worship in regards to the temple. First comes the spiritual then the physical, or first comes the physical, then the spiritual, sorry. And so when Jesus is answering the Pharisees, he's not talking about the physical temple. They're missing it, their own little empire. He's talking about his body. He's talking about the spiritual temple. Stephen affirms this in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 44 to 51. He says this, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. 
And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked him to find a dwelling place for, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my place of rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Regarding the understanding of even their own system of worship, they had missed the boat. The temple that Jesus was talking about should have been given priority because it was emphasizing his person and his work the character, and the glory of God. Following the resurrection of Jesus, the need for the physical temple was obsolete. The curtain had been torn. Temple worship had ended. And now Jesus would reign in his spiritual temple that he promised he would build. And he is building still today the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Friends, we should consider that just like the Pharisees, we sometimes, too, battle the desire to protect our own little empires. Sometimes fear, instead of driving us towards a greater dependence on God, drives us into protection and self-preservation mode. And closed-fisted, we attempt to grasp hold of and try to control and try to restore some semblance of order to, current, to the current of the new and the uncomfortable realities that we might be facing. But my question is this. How different would our churches look if, if in every decision we disagree with or, or every decision we might be disappointed in or if every decision we might disapprove of, if we understood it in light of God's superintendence for our good and his glory. Friends, we're a family. And, and I don't know about all your families, but not everybody in my family agrees on everything all the time. In fact, a family of five and, and, and the larger family I'm in, we, we disagree rather often. We, we went out for dinner last night, and at the table, there was disagreement. <laughs> all right? There's disagreement. I mean, crayons were taken away. All right? Things, <laughs> things were taken. All right? I mean, there, there was chocolate milk was spilt. Okay? Uh, there, there, there's going to be disagreement. There's going to be disapproval. There's going to be disappointment sometimes. And this is a body. This is a family. And what, what if we would... Understand those things in light of God's superintendence for our good and his glory. Isn't it true that God uses our fears, our discomforts? We were just talking about this in the back at the sound booth this morning. He uses our disagreements, our pain, and our intolerance sometimes to drive us towards a greater love for him and a greater love for each other. Friends, we have to remember that, that the church, this is not, it's not the building. It's a people a kingdom of priests. And the empire doesn't belong uh, to the high and the mighty, as we see here in the hands of the religious elite and the Pharisees. The empire belongs to the weak, 
because he's chosen the weak to astound the wise. It belongs to the king who is perfect and wholly able to guide and direct and to lead it for the goal of his glory. And so the disciples uh, in verse 22, they have this great privilege of watching the word Jesus confirm and affirm the trustworthiness of his word, the scriptures, over and over and over again while he was on earth. And the result was that after he was crucified and rose again, his trustworthiness confirmed their belief. Shouldn't the example of his trustworthiness in our lives also do the same thing for us? Yet Jesus knew the condition of man, as the end of our text affirms today. This is verses 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Verses 23 to 25 set us up to where we're going the next few weeks as we begin to look at the account of Jesus with Nicodemus. Jesus was omniscient. He understood the condition of men's hearts and minds. Uh, he revealed that reality both in the account we're going to look at next week in the story of Nicodemus, but he also revealed it in the account of the woman at the well, and he revealed that reality in the multiple interactions that he had with the Pharisees. He knew the, he knew the condition of man's heart. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew their motivations and their intentions. No one had to inform Jesus about what man was like. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This reveals the true condition of our hearts apart from Jesus. And, and isn't it ironic, isn't it amazing, is here Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was on earth to rescue his people. He was going into the temple on the Passover. There couldn't be a more beautiful scene to be set for the reception of the Messiah. And what happened? That their hearts were, were desperate and sick and they rejected him. And they turned him away as a madman. And they treated him as such for the rest of his earthly ministry. The question this morning then is, how should our lives look in light of these realities? And, and as I was looking at this text this week, really three thoughts continued to, to go through my mind. First, friends, we are the temple. A, a kingdom of priests. We are the church, his body. And we must be careful to avoid distractions and to keep him the central focus of our mission, vision, and purpose. Church, we can get distracted by so many things. There's so much going on. Many of them are probably very, very good things as well. But good things can sometimes have a way of taking our eyes and our focus off of Jesus too. It's my intention to see that together as a body of Christ, that we would align our mission and vision and purpose on Jesus and growing in a greater love for him and a greater love for each other. And I'll say it over and over and over again. Folks, that's what we're to be doing as a body of Christ. Growing in a greater love for God and a greater love for each other. The second thought follows. 
We must be careful that the empire of our hands, the empires of our hands, do not become the bane of our hearts. Our end is found in Jesus. The fortunes of our lives, the work of our hands, whether realized in wealth, production, social standing, career success, whatever it may be, Jesus must be given the glory. He must be given the credit, the honor, and the worth. Because it's only by His grace that we are who we are and we go where we go. The testimony of our lives, if anything good is produced, is this. His grace to me has not been without effect. Right? His grace to me has not been without effect. And finally this. All we do must be compelled by Christ and motivated by love. That our obedience to Jesus would look like love and that we would find ourselves defined as children of love with a nature of love. Jesus is with us today. And I'm sure he cares much less about the current condition of our homes. He already knows what's in all our junk drawers. He already knows our closets are messy and there's stuff shoved under our beds. There's no hiding it. He knows it's all there. And I think he's much, much less concerned about those things than he is about the current condition of us as a body and the current condition of us and our hearts as individuals. Would you pray with me as our team comes to lead us in our final song today? Father God, as we witness this account of your son clearing the temple, we're reminded how off track we can sometimes become. We're reminded how our focus can so quickly fall away from you and lead us down a path that puts us in a place where we're just completely living outside of your will for our lives. Lord, would you keep us from following in the example of the Pharisees? God, would you reveal to us places in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own lives that we may have missed the mark? And Lord, would you compel us to love others through the power of your Spirit? And might we be able to give all the glory and honor to you? And might people look at our lives and realize that the grace that you have given to us has not been without effect. It's in Jesus' name we pray.